Welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it is Friday, October 14th, 2016. The year has gone by very quickly. It's been a tumultuous year for pretty much everybody on the planet. I think that goes without saying. And we're here to bring you the news. Trigger warning, we'll be talking about the news and current events. And we have some positive news stories, which is great. I also have had caffeine already, so I'll be approaching the show in a little bit more lively manner than I was last week, which is great. That was a song by Arcade Fire, and I'll say a few things about that song. First off, uh, just the idea behind it. Um, the idea of uh, not uh, rushing forward anymore. And I, I used to play soccer when I was a kid, and I liked playing fullback like defense. That was my favorite position, which some folks found frustrating because the culture that we live in was very much... Uh, aggressive. The idea that there's more attention, I think, being put on scoring against the other team as opposed to protecting one's own team. I feel that's very consistent with the American ideology. You know, shoot first, ask questions later, if at all. And one of my favorite things I learned playing soccer, which I think is very metaphorical, is when someone kicks the ball to you and you're on defense, the idea is to stop it before you kick it back. Because if you just kick it right away, it you don't have really as much control over it, you don't have as much aim, and it can go all over the place. And I feel like that's kind of what's been happening in the world. I think forever, for a very long time, where there's so much, so many things happening and there's not a lot of time to step back. There is time, I should say. There is time to step back, and that doesn't seem to be the way things work. There's an immediate reaction to a lot of things, which ends up making the problems worse. And people don't take time to think. People don't take time to react uh, calmly, 
am I thinking about law enforcement in this situation? Yes. As well as a lot of other things. The idea of wars and this, uh, I think also with wars, a lot of it's contrived and a lot of it's based on greed and fear. I do think people's reactions oftentimes are based on fear and there's this initial reaction to strike back. Uh, I myself have done it. I know many, many folks have also done that too, where it's this, oh, I've been hurt. I better hurt that person back. I better like lash out right away. And I feel that's very common in our culture, which is a shame. And I imagine what would it be like if we, we didn't do that? Another thing the song made me think about the idea of like writing letters and taking time. And I'm of the generation where we existed before the internet, before we were carrying phones around all the time where we were always looking at screens. And that's been something that's been bothering me for a very long time. I said I didn't get a cell phone in the first place. I had to be, I agreed to do it. So I guess I'm, I'm still use one. So I sold out in that regard. I was hesitant to get a cell phone in the first place. And then I was hesitant to get a smartphone after that. And now of course I, I use them, I use it. And part of it is like that kind of thinking of oh, everyone else is doing it, so I need to do it too. And then also how it makes us detach from one another. And there have been numerous situations where I've been out and I look around and everyone's on their phones and I either don't have my phone with me and or I don't want to have my phone on and we're sharing the space together and we're not looking at each other, we're not talking with each other, we're not engaging and interacting with one another. And not to say that I also haven't been guilty of that where I've been in public and I've been looking at my phone, whether it's to look at music or to correspond with a friend or just to escape entirely. So I'm, I'm totally guilty of that. I do feel it's so common. And here in the Bay Area, where it's like the home, the tech home, it's huge. How many times have you almost been hit by someone walking down the street, looking at their phone, not looking where they're going? That happens to me at least once a day. And it's just this, uh, it seems selfish. And it seems like this lack of awareness of the world around us. And that makes me super sad. The music doesn't make me super sad. And I'll tell a story about the band right now. So Wynn Butler, who was a singer of Arcade Fire, uh, we went to the same college. And I was in a class with him. Uh, this was my first year. It was like history of the Vietnam War. And it was pretty much how the US, ugh, that's my summary of it. <laughs> it's very, I know, very detailed, a very detailed perspective of it. But ugh, ugh, just, yeah. What I remember, though, from this person who was in this band, and I totally enjoyed their music. And I was actually just at a coffee shop before now. And the person there was playing some Motown and some oldies. And, you know, we were talking about Phil Spector and how he was a great, you know, creative genius and then also an asshole in real life and how a lot of creative geniuses, they do a lot of great work. And then how their treatment of people, <laughs> aside from that, is reprehensible. So anyway, I have very few interactions with Wynn Butler. I love the band. I think they're great. However, I remember in class him bringing glasses from the dining hall and eating ice cream in class. Not a very interesting memory, but I was like, why are you taking classes from the dining hall? But I didn't, that was like my one memory that stuck with me. And then my good friend Kalia mentions that they, I think they may have lived in the same dorm, but he tried to steal her TV. That's really messed up. And that's gross. And then on top of that, there was a site that was called Arcade Fire Stole My Basketball about a fan or someone who was playing basketball with him. And he tried to steal his friend's basketball or this guy's basketball. I don't know if he's a friend or not, but so, ugh thought I'd point that out just because uh, talking about the complexities of people. I think the poetry of the songs are great. The messages are great. And also, yeah, just uh, a lot of the lyrics really stuck with me. And that's been in my head for a while. And I went to karaoke last night and I wanted to sing it. They don't have it at karaoke, which is okay. And I feel it's, this is a problem that I've had a lot of the time where there's like songs that I really want to sing that I'm really feeling and they're not in the catalog, which I understand. I maybe have particular tastes. I'm not someone who sings Don't Stop Believin'. 
Um, and I feel it's really, I can relate this to my own experience of being a trans person in a way where there's thousands of songs in the songbook and there's one in particular that I feel like I could, I don't know if I could do it justice, but it's like in my heart and I really want to sing it and it has a message of what I'm feeling at the time and it's not available. Um, all these other things are available and none of them are really quite clicking with me. And so I'll spend time kind of looking through the book and like, okay, what's the next best thing I can do? And that takes a lot of time and then I get self-conscious, depending on if I'm feeling self-conscious or not, but because if someone else wants to read the book or look at the book or the, you know, the earlier I choose a song, the earlier I go up, et cetera, et cetera. And the time it takes me to not have what I would like to use, uh, I have to find something else. And I feel like it's this, I know what I want. I know what would work for me and what would work for me is not available. And so then we have to like make sense of what else is available. And I feel like that with identity where I have a strong sense of self. I'm secure in myself in some ways, in my identity anyway. And society doesn't really welcome that. So I have to find other ways that aren't quite 100% for me to fit in and express myself. <sighs> so that's where I was going with that. And the idea, yeah, we used to wait. I remember mailing letters back and forth with friends, um, especially after I moved. This was before the internet. Um, just waiting and what that, what that felt like. I remember I was on a softball team. I was on a few softball teams. One team was called the Gold Diggers. I realize now that that was meant to like folks who were, I guess, more colonizers, which is a problem. But you know, the folks who were digging gold as opposed, it was a girls' softball team. So looking at the other meaning behind gold diggers, I was like, oh, this is not a great thing for ten-year-old young people. Anyway, we it was like the first my first year I was playing, and uh, my family we uh, were, I think, out of town, and so I missed the the playoff. Anyway, we, our team won the championship, and I wasn't there for it. And I wasn't sure if we'd won or not. And I remember getting a postcard in the mail from Becky, one of my teammates, saying that the, the team won, and I was so excited to get it. And then also just as a ten as a ten year old, my worldview or what was important to me at that time was this this team that I cared a lot about, and being able to hear it, and also waiting, just waiting for days. And yes, we had telephones in those days, but getting that that postcard was just that's not there anymore. Now there's like this instant gratification, this instant um, expectation of response and an instant uh, sharing of information, which in some ways is really useful, especially when there's a lot of protests and actions happening and telling folks this is happening right now, get involved, be aware, wake up. And there's also not a lot of time at the same time for any response to other situations where it helps to have some time to step back and look at the look at the big picture and think <sighs> and then i think about the, the the wider political landscape right now which is pretty much disastrous there's a meme going around of grumpy cat saying i hope they both lose and that's kind of where i'm at um i the fact that i even have to talk about one of the candidates is disgusting i my only moral qualm about this person being <laughs> around still um is what their their followers would do um, but then I think about, oh, their followers are already attacking people. So what's kind of, I mean, it's like they're already being violent. The violence has already started. So when do we fight back? And there's a great, I think, I believe it was Stokely Carmichael who said, nonviolence only works if your enemy has a conscience. And I think with a lot of these people in power, they don't have a fucking conscience. They don't. It's one thing to be able to like, oh, hey, let's talk about this. Let's exchange ideas. Um, a lot of these folks refuse to do that. They refuse to listen. So I'm wondering what the next steps are. And then there's another candidate who I am not a fan of. And some people may say, oh, maybe it's because 
of this person's their body or and it's nope it's their policies and i don't want to be scared into voting for someone i don't agree with either and i there's been a lot of debate and i hate how fractured it's become and people feel fear and i get it i totally understand that and i think one has a very much a right to say i don't like either of these choices i feel that way about a lot of things and I also think that having two things to choose from, that's not really a choice, because if you don't like one, you shouldn't have to go with the other. So I'll be playing a clip later that goes into more detail. It's from, there are a lot of protests uh, outside the, the DNC. And I'll be playing a clip that my friend uh, Poe posted that um, with a, a Haitian uh, person who was talking about the, the Clintons in Haiti and what they've done to Haiti. And I feel like that's a really valid uh, reason to not support this one candidate. I don't, the whole thing though, it's not like, oh, well, elect Green Party and everything will get fixed. I feel the whole system's fucked. I almost feel no matter who we get in there, everything's fucked and we need to, we need to start over personally. And one thing that makes me super sad is just seeing so many people fighting. And it's, I know it's fear-based and it's, everyone has their best intentions. Everyone wants to feel safe and protected and fear of one makes people feel like they can go to someone else. And I guess we're all trained to follow people, to follow leaders, and to feel that people in power are going to protect us. When these are wealthy white supremacists, uh, I don't think they have our best interests at heart. I really don't. I really, really don't. And I think that's very fair to say. And I also like to listen, and a lot of it, my opinion is informed by folks who um, I have... Uh, in, in a lot of regards, more more privileged than, and I want to listen to the folks who have the most at stake. And a lot of these folks are terrified by both both of the candidates, and I think that's valid. Then <sighs> there's also there's conspiracy theories, and some I think which may be accurate that it's all it's all a setup. And I also think it's really important to pay attention to local politics too. Not that those aren't also super fucking corrupt. And I was just at a press conference in front of City Hall. Um, talking about Ron Conway and all the folks here in San Francisco who are Airbnb and all these folks who are lobbying to not get the progressive candidates elected. Money, big money. I mean, that's everywhere. Big money is being pushed to get folks in positions of power it's for people to keep their control, and that's disgusting. I was at a rally last night outside Harvey Milk Plaza on the Castro to, to encourage folks to vote no on RNQ. And as the show goes on towards November, we'll be talking more about some of the initiatives in California and in San Francisco. And R&Q are really disgusting. Okay, so there's, I'm going to just go out and call them white supremacist fascists because the actions that they support pretty much are in line with that. And that is uh, Mark Farrell and Scott Weiner, And they're on the Board of Supervisors, and they support really gross measures uh, such as R&Q. And Q in particular, it's just like, this. Q is the, uh, let's get rid of all the tents. So there's a huge, there's a, there's a crisis. There's, a, there's an emergency of lack of housing in San Francisco and around the world. Let's put it that way. Maybe I shouldn't even say lack of housing. Maybe it should be that there's housing available, but certain people won't, won't, won't rent it out. They want to keep the rent super high. So there's empty apartments. So I don't even know if it is a... It's to say that there's a lack of housing, maybe it's uh, folks who own the housing are not letting people in. Maybe that's more of the issue. So a lot of folks camp out. People have tents on the sidewalk because they need to survive. They need to have shelter. And so there's a, if you walk around San Francisco, you'll see a lot of tents. And so Prop Q would, it's, it's this guy's, and there's this idea that it's, uh, the demonstration yesterday was really cool, and they had uh, a visual representation of like a house of cards. And that's kind of what 
uh, what Prop Q is. It's like this idea of like, oh, we want housing, not tents. And like, if you vote for this, which is, and it's put forth by um, uh, Melissa Mayer, who's like the C CEO of Yahoo, like a lot of wealthy folks are putting a lot of money into it. So uh, yeah, you really fucking care. If you're going to benefit like from, like those are the folks who benefit from keeping people out of housing. Whew. Anyway, so whew. I'm going to calm down. Also, these are folks, uh, the Board of Supervisors folks are people who um, support the SFPD regardless of their actions. And that, of course, goes hand in hand because police often harass homeless folks. So it's, it's pretty gross. The point is that this proposition uh, would make it illegal for folks to have tents on sidewalks. There's already 22 um, bills, bills, laws, 22 laws. Yeah, laws in San Francisco that are anti-homeless, that criminalize homeless people. So these are the most, you know, vulnerable people we have, and they're criminalized, which is just disgusting. And they want to add another one to that. They want to say, oh, you can't even have tents. And that's just disgusting and gross. So there was a demonstration yesterday, and I have to thank the folks from the Coalition on Homelessness and other folks who were there for speaking out and getting attention about those propositions. And it's happening here in San Francisco. It's like this wealthy city, and the wealth disparity is huge. I remember reading a story maybe at least two years ago on the show about how the wealth income gap here in San Francisco is on par with Rwanda. Like, it's insane. I know wording can be problematic. So it's, I shouldn't say insane. It is, ugh, it's sickening. And it's unnecessary, too. So maybe we can do something to change it. So, and again, I, I consider myself to be an anarchist who votes. I feel there's a lot of ways to change the system, and I'll do whatever I can um, to to do that. And I feel if folks paid as much attention to local politics as they did to this presidential election, things would shift a lot. Uh, there's not a lot of information about it, and I think it's easier. Everyone's been fighting so much about the the president, the president, the president, and how about who's on the board of supervisors? How about who's running in your neighborhoods? How about the propositions that are going to be passed? That's I feel like that has much more of an impact. <sighs> well, here's to an overthrow of everything, if I haven't said that already. That's kind of how I feel. And again, it's, you know, we need to have something else in place. So I, I get that. You can't just, like, set fire and then be like, oh, that'll solve everything, because then other problems can er erupt. I do feel like we need to find other ways to, to solve things and other ways to function. And there have been some great articles out about alternatives to calling the police, for instance. So it's to find a systemic problem and then to find alternatives. Um, also, with prison abolition... That would be great. Unfortunately, I heard yesterday that they're building a huge prison in, in Los Angeles, and it would be wonderful to see folks protesting that as folks are protesting the pipeline in North Dakota, like putting their bodies on the line. And I recognize that not everyone is able to do that. Um, but how great would that be for folks to really show up for that and to prevent this, the mass incarceration from getting even larger? It's really gross. Uh, there's so many, I think it's like we have, uh, the U.S. has 5% of the, the world's population and 25% of the prisoners. Like, it's just, it's disgusting. And then also, of course, looking at like racial disparities in, in prison and LGBTQ folks, and it's just gross. <sighs> so there's a Netflix documentary out called The 13th. I highly recommend folks check out also for more of a history lesson and just to see how racism has continued on in this country and how uh, the, the idea of slavery exists within prisons right now still. And there's this idea that we live in a democracy when we really don't. <sighs> so that's a great way of starting this show. It's, I've always said I'd rather speak the truth that 
is jarring and upsetting than sit here and I don't want to say fart because everyone farts, but to say just to pretend it's not existing or to to joke around and I've also been told I need to take it easy in some regards to not pay, not not necessarily pay, pay, pay much attention, but I feel like I don't know how not to. I feel ancestrally like I owe it to my ancestors to speak up about injustices. I owe it to my friends and to folks who don't have the ability to speak up or aren't in the position to speak up. Here I'm on the radio station. I have a chance to speak. It's uncensored. I have no sponsors, for better or for worse, so I can swear as much as I want. I can say whatever I want without any repercussions, and not everyone has that opportunity. So I'm damn well going to talk about what's happening. Oh. Before we get started with the the news, I'll be playing some more music to kind of cleanse the palate, get everyone in a chill mood. I've been listening to a lot of instrumental music lately, and that's been really calming and relaxing. So I've got to thank my friend Taylor for um, exposing me to or recommending there's a station on Pandora, L1011. There's a band, and it's a lot of good uh, instrumental music, which is really nice a lot of the time and kind of fits a lot of moods. And I think it's great for the show, too, because, yes, there's a lot of great political songs, and I love playing those. And also, it's good just to have... <laughs> So a breather and some instrumental music. So this song is by L1011. It's called Transitions. Ha 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 <laughs> ha uh, ha. Yeah, transitions are always um, always about. And I'll be talking a lot about trans issues on the show today, and that's something I've realized that it's been on the undercurrent in my and it's been happening my you know my, my, for my individuality like my entire life. It's informed my choices, my behavior, and it's difficult to stay alive in this country based on one, the body that one is born into. We can, we can broaden it. It goes beyond trans folks. It's like the bodies that we're born into uh, for women, for people of color, for LGBTQ folks across the board. Ability, like uh, chronic illness. Like there's so many based on the bodies that we're born into. We're all spirits in these bodies and we're all equal, yet because of the bodies we're born into, we're treated differently and we're disrespected by folks in power. And the folks in power treat us a certain way and people look up to them and then they continue that behavior. And it's really upsetting and how can we get anything done how can we survive how can we thrive i mean how can we thrive if we can't survive so i think about trans and i'll be going over more and more trans folks have been killed this year and there's an article that 2016 is like the most it's been like the most folks this year who have been killed and i think I, i get that it's like backlash i get that there's progress made and then there's backlash folks in positions of power don't like being challenged and then they they react and what does that feel like for those of us who just want to exist? It's not even, you know, we're not asking for special rights. We're asking for equal rights. And for some people who aren't used to giving equal rights, they feel like they're being threatened. And they need to shut the fuck up. That's that's where I'm going with that. I wanted to read a text. I got a lovely text today from my friend Austin, listener of the show, a good friend I've known for a while. And um, I really appreciate Austin sending me this message. First, they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then you win, which is a quote from Gandhi. Violence means the struggle isn't over, but you're winning, and they're afraid. The KKK reformed after civil rights started getting mainstream support. Homophobia revived once straight people started taking AIDS seriously, once the mainstream started accepting LGB people. It's always darkest before the dawn. And I think that's really important to, to recognize so thank you, Austin, uh, for that. And it's good to remember because there's been a lot of I, everyone I've been talking to and I've been talking to a lot of I've been reconnecting with some people I haven't spoken to in a long time. And that's been really wonderful. And just hearing the struggles that so many people are going through and how universal it is and how unnecessary a lot of this is 
it's it goes beyond life being unfair it's the treatment of one another and uh that's just so heartbreaking so i think it's good to remember that yeah a lot of this is backlash and knowing that things are in some ways progressing and it, it's it's not all hopeless it's not all going to hell and of course one could look at the environmental issues and how that's affecting the earth and thankfully it's raining today that's great we could use the rain uh, i'm not going to quote travis bickle he did have a great the quote and, and taxi drivers like oh the rain will come in and wash all the people xyz people away some of that language is super problematic so i'm not going to quote it directly i do agree it's nice for a cleansing and the earth could definitely use a cleansing of the pollution and the misbehavior of of folks and it's great to, that it's raining um, in for the environment, and I hope everyone who's outside gets the adequate shelter that they need. Oh, that was a <laughs> that was a rant for you. So yeah, I'll be talking about a lot of different things today. Also, women kicking ass. Women always kick ass, and um, I I posted something recently that was uh, now is a good of a time as any for re- real life reenactments of the film Nine to Five. If you haven't seen the movie, go see it right now. It's awesome. It's from 1980. It's super kick ass. And uh, it's about women kind of fighting back. And I would love to see that happen even more. And there are plenty of women fighting back, so I don't want to say that's not happening. It's definitely happening. And I want to encourage more of that and lend support and a voice to the folks who are already doing that because that's what we need. (sighs) All right. Time for a music break. We'll be back with some news stories in just a bit. And this is L1011.
and welcome back to the weekly review the happiest show on earth that's not our tagline it used to be the news is depressing and sometimes we play music although the news isn't always depressing and we always play music on every single show because it's nice and music is the universal language said somebody once and many people repeated it including myself that was l1011 with transitions and we're going to get to some news. First of all, I have to give a shout out to Melissa Gutierrez, a good friend of mine. I've been having difficulty sleeping for a few weeks. haven't been able to sleep through the night. So Melissa, my friend who's really into botanicals and a lot of homeopathy and recommend lemon balm. And that's kind of helped me rest a little bit as well as valerian root and passion flower. So I wanted to put that out there for folks who are also having difficulty. Um, I haven't been able to sleep through the night in a while, which is not great. Um, I am admitting it because it's there and it affects everything. So that's happening and it's putting it out there. Ugh. I wanted to lead into something happier. So I got some happy news. Um, happy stories of people reacting to dickheads. And the first story is from Gothamist. And this is women form human chain outside Trump Tower um, I'm going to open up this full page so I can give you the full headline. Oops, it's a little bit. All right. And the shouting, uh, pussy came to shut it down. And this was written by Emma Whitford. And this came out on October 12th. And you can check out the article on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash weekly rev. They have a lot of photos on this article. Oops. And I'm going to move up here. A group of about 60 women linked arms across the entrance of Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue this morning, blocking passage in and out of the building as they condemned Trump and the entire GOP for what they described as decades of anti-women, anti-immigrant, and anti-black policies. And they have a lot of photos here of the demonstration and a lot of folks with signs. Holding signs that read, Pussies in formation, Pussy grabs back, and Cunt touch this. The women chanted their response to a tape leaked last week in which Trump can be heard assuring a since-humiliated Billy Bush that he likes to, quote-unquote, grab women by the pussy without their consent, among other things. Not that Trump's historically had reservations about degrading women on the public airwaves. If Trump thinks he runs this town, they shouted, pussy came to shut it down. Ooh, and here's a clip. Let's see what the clip sounds like. And here we go. Yeah. Organizer Bridget Flaherty said there were about a dozen cops on the scene attempting to keep the sidewalk clear, but because we had the numbers, we were able to hold the space and we didn't have any problems. The women wore all black, Flaherty explained, as a sign of militancy that women are fighting back. It's not just Donald Trump, protester Malika Connor told the crowd. The GOP has attacked women's bodies and our access to health care for decades. We are here to say GOP hands off women. 
The group dispersed around 8.30 a.m. after about half an hour in front of the tower. Flaherty said that honking cars and shouts of fuck Trump encouraged them. They'll likely stage a follow-up protest for the coming weeks. And there's a lot of great photos here of folks with signs. Super awesome. Great to hear folks going out. And uh, yeah, I, yes, that's all I have to say about that. But right on and keep on speaking up and fighting that dickhead. And yeah, and the VP is running mates a, a dickhead too. That's my professional term. That <laughs> insult the dickheads, but that's uh, there's no there's no room for these folks uh, to spout their horrific rhetoric. The next up is also a positive post, and this comes from NationalPost.com. Kurdish women soldiers aren't just fighting ISIL; they're leading society in a different way. And this uh, came out on Thursday, October sixth, two thousand sixteen. You'd think it would be big news that there's a liberated area in the Middle East led by kick-ass socialist feminists, where people make decisions through local councils and women hold 40% of leadership positions at all levels, Meredith Tax wrote in 2015. You'd think it would be even bigger news that their militias are tough enough to beat ISIS. Tax, an American feminist writer and activist since the 1970s, has spent years reporting on the all-female Kurdish YPJ, Women's Defense Forces, who work alongside the YPG, People's Protection Units, in the self-governing northern Syria region of Rojava, where every leadership position in government is shared by a man and a woman. She spoke with the National Post about her new book, The Road Unforeseen and the Significance of the YPJ. Why is it so important to you to tell the story of the women in Rojava? <sighs> I have seen other revolutions where there have been armed struggles and women are fighting as guerrillas, not usually in separate women's units, but together with men and not in command. I have never seen anything with the vast number of women fighting, and with the kind of emphasis on it being important and part of self-defense for women that I see in Syria and Turkey among the Kurds. I belong to an organization called the Center for Secular Space, which believes it is of critical importance for women's rights that religion, any religion, be separate from the state and from any method of governance. It's fine to have religious organizations, and it's fine to have churches and temples and mosques and all, but and all that, but religious ideology should not be the basis of government, and this is the only place in the Middle East that has explicitly said that at a period of writing, uh, said that at a period of rising fundamentalism. Next question. You've spoken about how there isn't a lot of writing about the Rojava women, at least not in Western media. And she says, I started writing this book in 2014, during the Battle of Kobane, and is when I first got really obsessed with the subject and started to research it in a thorough way. At that point, there were pictures of women gorillas all over the place. I've seen pictures of women gorillas before. This is different because they're also leading society in a different way. They're not just being used in a fight because the fighters need more people. They're being called upon to fight because of an ideology that says women must learn how to defend themselves and to take charge in society. Next question. You say in the book's introduction that the story of these women hasn't yet been told because it doesn't fit into Western narratives. What do you mean by that? The answer, the Western narrative has always tended to be binary. It's us against them, at least in the, uni yeah, <laughs> at least in the United States. When I was growing up, the narrative was a Cold War narrative, basically. We were all supposed to fight communism wherever it cropped up, and anything that remotely had anything to do with that was sort of demonized. 
1989, the whole communist bloc collapsed as a result of its own incompetence and military overextension and political lack of credibility to the people who lived in, inside of it, and that destroyed the narrative. People who are opinion makers in Washington looked around for another enemy. Who's going to be the next enemy? Russia's gone. Women in Iraq and Kurdistan have tried very hard to organize against violence and female genital mutilation, but there's tremendous pushback from the men in these tribal structures. It's very different in Rojava, where it's like a rule that 40% of every organization, including organizations that run the community, has to be women. There has to be two leaders of every organization, one male and one female. They have quotas in some of the Nordic countries, but not like this. They're only for parliament. They're not for everything. Next question. You weren't able to travel to Syria to research this on the ground. How do you do your reporting? The answer, the internet has made research completely different from the way it used to be. You can find chat rooms with people who are in the YPG and YPJ, many of whom are college educated and have been abroad and speak English. And there's a huge amount of online media coming out of Kurdistan, and a lot of it is in English. There is a big dysphoria diaspora, especially in Germany, but in England and other parts of Europe as well. And in Canada, there's a huge Kurdish community in Toronto. I have written history books before, and this is essentially a work of contemporary history. A Road Unforeseen is available now from Bellevue Literary Press, and the interview has been edited and condensed. So if you want to check that out, that's also available on our weekly review page, as well as you go to the National Post, and the title again is Kurdish Women Soldiers Aren't Just Fighting ISIL, They're Leading Society in a Different Way. So... I feel it's really important to comment on news stories like that um, and talk about folks taking power back. The next article might piss off some people. That's probably about, I guess, every article that's ever been written because different things offend different people. And this one I think is really important to share. And this also, it, this deals more with intersectionality. And this is something I think about quite a lot. And that's uh, how some folks maybe unintentionally uh, support the the patriarchy, uh, even if they think they're they're not, and that could be also be even the white supremacist patriarchy, and so this is a really important article. I feel is worth sharing, and this comes from Medium.com, and I'm gonna just go up to the top here and make sure I'm reading all of the. Oh, it was written by Emma Lindsay, so giving Emma Lindsay um, credit for the article. And this is why straight white women perpetuate the patriarchy. Male privilege ain't so bad if you can marry it. And as someone who will never, ever um, be married to a straight man, uh, it's something I think about a lot just in terms of partnership and how, who folks end up with and how um, marrying and how, yeah, the article will say it, I think, really well. Why straight white women perpetuate the patriarchy. Male privilege ain't so bad if you can marry it. So this is important but could definitely be expanded further. In a piece titled Hillary Clinton, Betty, Betty Shelby, and Solidarity with Powerful White Women, Zoe Samudzi points out that the white points out that, that white women frequently use the power granted to them through the systems of racial oppression. Beyond that, however, she additionally highlights, but unfortunately doesn't deep dive into, the idea that many white women buy into the patriarchy. And it's, quote, many white women, self-identified feminists even, do not reject patriarchy as much as they claim to. Hillary Clinton, Betty Shelby, and solidarity with powerful white women. And solidarity with powerful white women. Okay. Once, I went to a female founders conference for female entrepreneurs, and one of the main speakers addressed the audience. Don't be afraid to found with your husband. Most female founders I know have founded with their husbands. Her words filled me with rage, but what she was saying was true. 
many successful female entrepreneurs I knew did indeed found with their husbands. Trying to found a company as a woman with a successful male partner is much easier than trying to found a company as a woman with a female partner, a woman with no partner, or a woman with a less successful male partner. This is a highly insidious type of patriarchy as women are denied access to success on their own and are reliant on their husbands. This crops up all over the place. Could a woman who hasn't been married to a previous president realistically be running right now? I can find no feminist analysis of the fact that Hillary's political career is so entwined with Bill's, but it is deeply troubling that women need to marry the right husband to progress in their careers. Asshole Trump, I'm adding the word asshole in there, Trump, on the other hand, can be on his third trophy wife because his wife's career is irrelevant. And I don't begrudge straight women who use their husbands to access success. If you like who you're married to, take advantage of it, but realize what you're doing. Because this isn't a harmless act of privilege, or any, discussion for another time. This is an act that clearly perpetuates patriarchy, even against the people taking advantage of it. Hillary claims she stayed with Bill out of love after his affairs, and maybe she did. But maybe she also realized that divorcing, it, divorcing his ass would cut her off from his substantial privilege. If women can only access privilege through their husbands, women will be forced to compromise themselves to keep their husbands. Who's not holding white men accountable again? I don't begrudge Hillary this. She's clearly smart, and watching her destroy Trump in that debate did my feminist heart good. If I could vote, I would vote for her, and I'd enjoy doing it. And this is, of course, this author, not me, Roman Reimer, saying this. Uh, but there's a reason Elizabeth Warren didn't make it to the White House. There's a reason that it is harder for women of color to make it in politics. And mark my words, I'll bet many successful women of color will we see rise will be married to white men. That's, again, their words. On a side note, this is why Oprah is so good. Oprah is one of my all-time heroes, and I'll have to write about her another day. But quick summary, she has no class privilege. She had no class privilege, no race privilege. She wasn't married, opting instead for a spiritual union, and she changed the world of television. She created a type of talk show that hadn't existed before. I always think about Oprah when I get down on oppressive systems. So if you need a non-depressing counterexample, go wiki-stock Oprah for a bit. But anyway, yeah, I agree with Samudzi. Many white women perpetuate the patriarchy because it is the quickest way for them to achieve their own success. What's more efficient? What's more efficient? Marrying someone and using their privilege or waiting 30 years for intersectional feminism to work? Because white women tend to marry straight white men, aka winners of the privileged jackpot, white women married to white men are not fully incentivized to dismantle either white privilege or patriarchy because they get some of the blowback. This is also why women tend to marry older men. Young women can rise in a world more quickly if they marry someone who has already done it. Women married to men will, generally, want their partners to succeed more than they want anyone else in the world to succeed, except themselves. And this is why women don't always help women. This is why women perpetuate patriarchy. Of course, this isn't just white women. I have observed that when I have a non-white partner, when, when I have a not-white partner, they are sometimes not quite so opposed to white privilege as they once were if they believe they can access white privilege through me. Men of color will frequently lean into sexism, thin people will lean into fat phobia, straight people will lean into homophobia, and the able-bodied into disability discrimination, etc. Effectively, people are always just looking for the shortest path to their own personal success. People are willing to go to bat for issues that negatively affect them. They are less likely to really invest energy into things that will not, that will not, that will not benefit them directly. Welcome to human nature. So, what to do? 
One thing to note is that any conditional access to privilege, women through men, people of color through white partners, etc., will always involve emotionally crushing the less privileged partner. Yep. Intimate forms of violence, like sexual assault, for instance, are more likely to trigger PTSD than non-personal forms of violence, like, say, a car accident statistic found in this book, and they have a link to that. In a similar fashion, I'd argue that oppression at the hands of your beloved is worse than oppression at the hands of strangers. And I think a lot of straight white women may not know what they're giving up. I didn't know until I dated a woman for the first time. It was as if a shroud of perpetual shame had been lifted from me. To put it succinctly, I was always the less important person. My ambitions were always less important than my partner's. My needs, including things like uh, need not to have sex to heal from sexual trauma, were always less important than my partner's needs, say, to have sexual access to my body. And I realized that being single, being less respected in the world, having less money, even if it comes to it, Never having kids, all these things are better than having a life partnership where I am oppressed by my partner. Living 24-7 in a world where I constantly had to embrace my second citizenship status was horrible. However, it was impossible to have this perspective until I had experienced something else. I couldn't imagine life any other way. And this is known. This is straight-up old-school feminism. This is what the feminine mystique was written about. But it's taken on a new twist. Women no longer have to keep house, though... People, women no longer have to keep house through their partners, but they do access societal success through their partners. They get their work connections through their partners. They found their companies with their partners. And generally, women who are able to access this success are willing to make this trade-off, and they seem feminist and empowered as they succeed in the business world, but they're not. Everything they do requires the permission of their male partner. Deeply radical things women need, things that only women could make, things that might really shake up the world, will not get made because their production requires buy-in from men who won't understand the importance. Which is why the fight from women at the intersections, women who cannot or will not marry into these kinds of privileges, is so important. It is from these women that big cultural change will come. It is from these women that the truly revolutionary will occur. But we're not there yet. Most women with serious intersectionality, women of color, trans women, disabled women, etc., have to fight so hard to survive they can't produce larger cultural works. And I don't know how to support them, but I'm trying to figure out a way. How can we create a support structure? How can we support these support structures that will allow these women to flourish, support structures that might provide some of the functions a marriage historically has? I don't know yet. I'm thinking about it. Maybe I should ask Oprah. Okay, so a lot of food for thought there. And again, this was written by Emma Lindsay, and you can find it at medium.com. Yeah, uh, just I think the talking about intersectionality is crucially important. And yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'm going to take another music break, and we'll be back in a little bit.
and welcome back. That was a lovely instrumental piece by the band Duster called Cold Dust. So there you go. Continuing on with the theme of intersectionality, this next article comes from Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. And this is from uh, Haaretz. White Jews left the movement for racial justice, but it's not too late to return. Note, this opinion piece by Leo Ferguson was published today, and this was, and by today, this was October 6th, 2016, in Haaretz. It is behind Haaretz Pay. Okay, they, they, if you can check it out at the Jews for Racial and Economic Justice webpage, and that is uh, jfrej.org. White Jews left the moment, left, white Jews left the movement for racial justice, but it's not too late to return. Jewish institutions' condemnation of the Black Lives Matter platform laid bare an uncomfortable truth. The glory days of Herschel marching, marching with King are long gone. We don't, we didn't earn a place, we didn't earn a place at the platform drafting table. And this is written by Leo Ferguson, October 6, 2016. Several weeks ago, prior to writing these words, Terrence Crutcher was shot to death by Betty Shelby. He was a black man. She was a white, she, she, a white police officer. He was unarmed and had his hands in the air. Watching the video shot from a hypnotically circling helicopter was like watching a diorama, a model miniature. We have become so accustomed to the tropes of black deaths and police violence that they assemble and reassemble themselves effortlessly and regularly. He had his hands up. She didn't. This one mistook his gun for a taser. That one thought the wallet was a weapon. She made a sudden movement. He didn't move at all. A wife, friend, daughter, caregiver screams or pleads with the police. He doesn't have a gun. He just needs his medication. Please, please don't shoot her. But the pleading never works. If it did, we wouldn't be watching the video. They always shoot. It, isn't, it just isn't worth hesitating, making oneself vulnerable. Two months ago, the Movement for Black Lives, a coalition of over 50 organizations, including the Black Lives Matter Network, released the Vision for Black Lives, a policy platform that outlined vital, concrete actions that our local and federal government could take to end police violence, invest in racially disadvantaged communities, and repair relationships with black people in America. One word, in a manifesto for a new future for black Americans. In one section, the authors call on the government to redirect federal grants to ethnically compromised, comprom compromised fed foreign armies and instead invest in struggling communities in the United States. In one paragraph, out of hundreds of authors, uh, out of hundreds, the authors name Israel as one of the many problematic nations and use the word genocide to describe the Palestinian experience of Israeli state violence and occupation. As a Jewish person who is also black, it was, it was almost painful to read the full vision for black lives. The platform is breathtaking in its breadth and scope. I had to browse through it multiple times before it fully dawned on me just what I was really reading, a blueprint for thoroughly dismantling centuries of institutional anti-black racism in America. This, the document seemed to shout, is what you would do if our lives actually mattered. It was painful because of how transparently earnest and hopeful it is. Not just the sheer amount of labor that obviously went into it, but the amount of vulnerability and hope evidenced. The release of the platform felt vertiginous, like a long-held secret spilling out into the open. Dozens of people from scores of organizations meticulously cataloging their greatest dreams for their community. Black people, my people, describing what it would look like for our, our nation, 
finally, to love us. So when the Jewish community came undone over one paragraph, and in some cases over one word, in the massive policy tract, my experience of what followed was deeply angering and frustrating, like watching from the bottom of a canyon while two estranged parties shouted at each across the yawning chasm. The Jewish institutional world, led almost exclusively by white people, communicated in statements and counterstatements, op-eds, and Twitter feeds. Jews of color could only watch in horror, an afterthought at best. White Jews long ago stopped seeing racial justice as our struggle. Why was it so easy, I kept wondering, as I read one press release after another, for them to condemn with such rapidity? Would you not, before denouncing someone's dream, at least hesitate? Approach aggrieved, but with curiosity, love, and humility? At one point, I believe we would have, but white Jews long ago stopped seeing racial justice as our struggle, and then stopped showing up. This summer, some uncomfortable truths were laid bare. Our communities, communities of color and Jewish communities, grassroots racial justice organizations and Jewish institutions aren't invested in each other. We don't have the kinds of real, meaningful relationships that prevent painful ruptures like the one we just experienced from occurring in the first place and speed the healing when we do make mistakes. There are some exceptions. At Jews for Racial and Economic Justice in New York, where I work, we have worked for 25 years in deep partnership with other organizations led by people of color. That means we have that we have personal relationships and friendships with leaders in other communities. We go to their planning meetings and fundraisers, and they come to ours. So when our friends, allies, and neighbors, most of them black and brown, are out in the streets fighting for justice, they know that we will be there with them. A long drift away from the days of Herschel and King. But unfortunately, this kind of long-term mutual commitment across racial and generational lines isn't the norm of in today's Jewish communities. We've come a long way since the glory days of the civil rights movement, of Herschel marching with King, and Jewish freedom writers desegregating bus stations. Driven by the inertia of assimilation, upward mobility, and the politics of respectability, we as a Jewish community have drifted away from our history of challenging the foundation of injustice. And more importantly, we have drifted away from our relationships with black people and their ongoing struggle for racial justice. When Black Lives Matter emerged in 2013, it had been decades since the mainstream Jewish community was actively involved in grassroots racial justice. Racism didn't go away. Jews did. Thus, when it came time for the sprawling coalition that is the Movement for Black Lives to write their visionary platform, there was no meaningful plurality of black Jews in the room to weigh in on the language they chose. When it comes to that particular m moment of the writing process, there is accountability to be had on all sides and there are plenty of Jews of color now engaging in an ongoing and healthy dialogue with representatives of the Movement for Black Lives. But that doesn't change the basic fact that most white Jews have never been to a local Black Lives Matter action or donated to one of the grassroots organizations in their area working for racial justice. This estrangement doesn't reflect the best aspects of our history as a people. <coughs> Jews need to take risks and show up. Our best selves emerge when we take risks and show up. I have never been more proud of our New York Jewish community than when, this summer, hundreds of Jews turned out in the streets of New York's of New York <coughs> for JFREJ's <coughs> Jews for Black Lives mobilizations following the killings of Alton Sterling, Corin Gaines, 
Philandro Castile and Dalron Small. And small numbers of Jews have been present as individuals and sometimes through institutions at Black Lives Matter actions all over the country. But despite these important exceptions, the reality is that the Jewish community has overwhelmingly been at the edges of this movement, or absent entirely. When I show up to a meeting or action in a community of color, I am welcomed as a black person, but I sometimes face ignorance and confusion about my Jewish identity. This is saddening and occasionally even crosses into anti-Semitism. As a black Jew, I will never stop fighting for my place within the black community. I will show up proudly black and proudly Jewish and demand to be loved and respected for both of these identities. And when the next platform is drafted, I want to see black Jews at the table shaping the vision and language. But the reality is that for many people of color, their only experience of Jews is as more white people. White strangers who go about their lives disengaged while we watch our siblings being stopped and frisked, our civil rights violated, and our friends harassed or jailed. We want neighbors, allies, and friends, not onlookers. Instead of Jews being strangers, I want communities of color to think of Jews instinctively as their friends and allies and family as the people they know intimately from planning meetings and protests and campaigns. These deep, these kind of deep, enduring and lasting relationships bound in struggle, grounded in work both, grounded in work both mundane and exhilarating. These relationships are the best vehicles we can ever create for building mutual understanding and trust, for fighting anti-Semitism and white supremacy. Teshuva, when did we stop answering the call to fight? <clears throat> We are entering the season of Teshuva, Tefillah, Tzedakah. <coughs> the moment in our calendar when we look long and hard at who we are so that we can create a foundation of truth for who we want to become. We can reflect on where, collectively, we went astray, on why the pain of past traumas allowed us so cavalierly to so cavalierly dismiss the pain right in front of us on what would cause a people to suffer so much that they would describe their experience as genocide and why that would resonate so much with another community in Ocean Away that they would take up their cause. We can reflect on why we collectively stopped answering the call to fight alongside our black and brown neighbors and the Jews of color in our midst, why we often don't even know their faces. As Rambam states, we must do differently after our self-reflection. We will, I hope, learn to be vulnerable. Rather than rushing to refute and denounce, we will lean in and we will listen and ask to be listened to so that the next time we feel hurt or afraid, we will also know that we are looking into the face of a friend and before hurting them in turn, we will hesitate. Leo Ferguson is a community organizer at Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, and he is the founder of JFREJ's Jews of Color Caucus, one of the leaders of the Grace Paley Organizing Fellowship, and was co-organizer of 2016's Jews of Color National Convening. You can follow him on, on Twitter at, at Leo Ferguson NYC.
in Philadelphia at a protest against Hillary Rodham Clinton. As you could see, there's a large number of people from the Haitian community who are pissed off at Hillary Rodham Clinton. If you don't understand geopolitics, this is the video for you. We're gonna explain everything that you need to know about what Hillary Clinton and the Clinton family did to he, uh, Haiti. I'm here joined by Joseph. Joseph, can you explain to us why is the Haitian community mad at Hillary Clinton? Well, we have every reason to be mad because um, the Clintons have destroyed Haiti for the decades. And you know, they pretend to be our friends when in reality they are our number one enemies. You know, there are some other people who clearly behave like they don't like us. So it's easy for us to protect ourselves against them because we know they are our enemies. But the Clintons are even more dangerous because they pretend to be our friends when in reality they're destroying Haiti. And I, because and I heard that the Clinton Foundation and all these other organizations gave over $6 billion to uh, Haiti for the relief effort, especially during the kind of natural disasters that you guys have gone through. Is that true? No, it's more than true. The money is much more than $6 billion. You see, after the earthquake, countries around the world um, donate billions of dollars. The amount was much larger than $6 billion. And Bill Clinton was in charge of the money. And not only people around the world, but also American celebrities donate a lot of larger money to rebuild Haiti. And hundreds of homes were destroyed after the earthquake. And if you can believe, um, the people are still living under tents. That's unacceptable. And not only they, they held the money, they kept the money, but Haiti had enough resources for them to be uh, um, very comfortable. Haiti have oil, more oil than Venezuela. Nobody's talking about Haiti have gold. We have one of the largest gold mines in, in, in the Caribbean. So, and they let the world, nobody's saying anything about our goals. Yeah. And who do you think is in charge of our goal right now? The contract. Yeah. Tony Rodham, Hillary Clinton's brother. Wow. He's got a 26 years contract. And then also Haiti used to produce, we used to produce our own rice. We didn't have to buy rice um, overseas. Bill Clinton destroyed our rice so his brother can sell the rice from Arkansas. Yeah. Wow. So they're doing a lot of things. Right now, if there's um, a millionaire or a billionaire who wants to do business in Haiti, they cannot do anything unless they check with the Clintons. The Clintons are the ones who's running Haiti. Yeah, wow. And we are living in the 21st century. We are the first black people who liberate ourselves from, from the French rule. We fought three empires, the British, the Spanish, the French. So it's, it's unacceptable for us to be occupied right now. They dropping disease in Haiti. They, they stealing our money. They stealing our resources. So we are out here, we are outraged for the crimes of the Clintons. Hillary Clinton have too much criminal records. She have no business running for president, especially for the news that came out in the email, find out that the, the, the DMC made all, all these tricks in order to, to favor Hillary Clinton. They, they rigged the system. Yeah. But my question is, when it comes to Hillary Clinton's brother, how was he able to get that contract? How were the Clintons allowed to have such control of Haiti? It's a family affair. Bill Clinton, the United Nations, named him the chief guy who was in charge of rebuilding Haiti. And then while Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State, so it's a family thing. Chelsea Clinton, all the Clinton Foundation, they're just stealing money. And most of the money, I can tell you right now, 
I know they, they, they have a lot of speech for money around the world and for Wall Street, but most of the money they have right now is from Haiti, from the Haitian. And, le and when they're letting the world know we are poor, let me, let me give you one simple example. If you are super rich, and then I would go and tell the whole world that you are poor for years, for decades, and then everybody believes you're poor. And then I would come out and steal your money. And then you go and let everybody know I stole your money. They're going to think you're crazy. Because everybody knows the world knows Haiti is the poorest country. When we are not, we are rich. Haiti used to call the island, island of Pearl. Haiti is still rich. So there are Haitian lawyers, Haitian doctors everywhere who wants, there are millionaires who wants to go and spend their money in Haiti. But the United States government, not only they're stealing our resources, our money, they're creating, they create kidnapping. Now we are even afraid to go to Haiti. You cannot walk in the street in Haiti. And then what the Clintons, they, they own the hotel, they, they go everywhere, they do whatever they want. This is unacceptable. I myself, I'm ready to die. I want the whole world to know who the Clintons are. This have to stop. Okay, and that was whew, a speaker from one of the protests outside the DNC, and I feel it's really important to 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 play that. And of course, I fucking hate Trump. I came in. I mean, he obviously um, despise him and his actions and who he is as a human. Like, of, of course, I do not want him. Uh, the fact that I even have to say that, I feel, should do I have to do I have to even have to say it? And I feel that one can criticize both candidates um, because that's honestly where I'm at. And I think it's really important also just to hear because I, I do recognize that Hillary Clinton has faced a lot of misogyny, no question. And that's it's fucked up that that's what she's been facing her entire life. And I think it's also important to acknowledge the actions, though. And that's, I think, what why some people are that don't trust her. That's that's what it comes down to, these concrete examples and hearing from people who have been directly affected by these actions. And I think that's really important that she's held accountable for these actions. And again, because we're questioning one person doesn't mean that, oh, I want fucking asshole dick face. <sighs> I know with my wording, I get that the show is not censored so I could say whatever I want and there could be more uh, creative words, more SAT words I could use to describe the, the person running against Clinton. Um, I do feel though it's, it's our duty to also hold her accountable um, because so many people are being affected and we've also heard that over a thousand people have died in the <sighs> since the the recent hurricane hurricane matthew in, in haiti as well so it's important to give these folks a voice and to hear where they're where they're coming from i think that's really important oh <sighs> i almost feel like we need to take another musical break because that's just really intense when we hear about you know folks are willing to fucking die for this to get the word out and that's that's important. That's really important. Oh, goodness gracious, 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 gracious. So there's a segment in the show, I guess it's the whole show, <laughs> quite often are folks in positions of power who abuse their authority. That's maybe the theme of the show. It's a, a very anti-fascist show. And definitely like to speak about the um, police corruption, which is ubiquitous. And um, I'll be either reading or summarizing two stories later. And I was joking in my head earlier about folks could vote for which police story is more offensive because they're both super offensive and problematic and just, oh, this is what, you know, every day I feel like, and I've, I've had negative feelings towards law enforcement for a very, very long time. I can't even trace it, but I've, even since I was a kid, I remember having just feel negative feelings about 
um, law enforcement. And I think as I've grown up, I've just heard more and more experience, like I've had my own ex personal experiences and my friends have had experiences and on the national and on the global level, seeing what, what happens. I think now there's more, I more have a vocabulary to describe why it's problematic and also just more reasons. And every day <laughs> I, I see another article, another, I read about another experience where uh, that's really destructive and problematic. So I was thinking, you know, sometimes they have polls like who wore it better, like two people wearing the same dress and or like, you know, two, you know, it's like people can poll like what's your favorite color or what's your favorite kind of ice cream? And I was thinking it'd be like, oh, which story about the police do you find to be more upsetting? Because it's it's just like, oh, these are both just really troublesome. Not that I, I like to do that. I don't necessarily dig polls because I don't like competition. I don't I don't like the idea that something has to be one or the other. I feel life is complex. Uh, things are. Uh, things are gray. There is definitely things to feel strongly about for sure. Um, and I guess I do believe in the, you know, whose side are you on argument. Um, though I, I don't like the idea of competition. That's not really where I'm at, but I will be <laughs> later on in the program, uh, speaking about two articles I read and I was like, Oh, these are both deeply troubling. <sighs> I'll read them right now. Why not? Um, and then I'll get to the other one. Oh, there's so much to get to. We're already at 126. We'll see what we can get to in the show. First one, police arrest more people for marijuana use than for all violent crimes combined. First of all, cannabis should be completely legalized and accessible for absolutely everyone. And people who have been imprisoned for it should be released immediately. No question. It's a medicine. It's a plant. Why? I mean, we know why it's illegal to, to lock people up. And so other folks can profit off other substances that they can use that people can use and people can sell. Blah. Uh, so this came from uh, uh, NOLA.com. And uh, this came out, whew, I'm already amped up. This is the Washington Post, October 12th. On any given day in the United States, at least 137,000 men and women, or people as I like to call them, sit behind bars on simple drug possession charges, according to a report released Wednesday by the American Civil Liberties Union and Human Rights Watch. Nearly two-thirds of them are in local jails. According to the report, most of these jailed inmates have not been convicted of any crime. They're sitting in a cell awaiting a day in court, which may be months or even years off because they can't afford to post bail. It's been 45 years since the war on drugs was declared, and it hasn't been a success, lead author Tess Borden of the Human Rights Watch said in an interview. Rates of drug use are not down. Drug dependency has not stopped. Every 25 seconds, we're arresting someone for drug use. Federal figures on drug arrests and drug use over the past three decades tell the story. Drug possession arrests skyrocketed from fewer than 200 arrests for every 100,000 people in 1979 to more than 500 in the mid-2000s. The drug possession rate has since fallen slightly, according to the FBI, hovering now around 400 arrests per 100,000 people. Defenders of harsh penalties for drug possession say they're necessary to deter people from using drugs and protect the public health. But despite the tough on-crime push that has led to the surge in arrests in recent decades, illicit drug use today is more common among Americans aged 12 and older than it was in the early 1980s. Federal figures show no correlation between drug possession arrests and rates of drug use during that time. But the ACLU Human Rights Watch report shows that arrests for drug possession continue to make up a significant chunk of modern-day police work. Now I'm going to end the reading the article that you're that year right now because I'm feeling really conscious of time and there's a lot more things I'd like to get to today. So that's just one, 
that's one thing folks can quote unquote vote for, not voting, because I'm not going to take a poll. But that's one upsetting news about police involvement in in our world. And the second one that's uh, super problematic from Huffington Post, uh, and this came out also on October 12th, on-duty Texas police officers wore pro-Trump hats. That's a problem. And they say, uh, you cannot take that position while in uniform, said a San Antonio city councilman. And again, this is on uh, Huffington Post and written by Julia Craven. Uh, a group of San Antonio police officers violated city policies when they donned Make America Great Again hats and posed for photos with, ew, with asshole Trump on Tuesday. The Republican presidential nominee recently tweeted a photo of the officers in hats bearing his campaign slogan. The footage shows Trump thanking them and some officers responding with a thumbs up. Text at the bottom of the video reads, we will make America safe and great again together. Fuck all you. Fuck all you. That's my comment. Not written in the article. San Antonio City employees are prohibited from participating in political activity while on the job. Tess House, a civil rights lawyer in San Antonio, said the display was inappropriate. They were acting within the scope of their they were acting within the scope of their employment. We're talking about taxpayer money. They are on duty and abusing their position in order to take a stance and support a political candidate, House told the Huffington Post. House is requesting a Justice Department investigation into the law enforcement agencies operating within the city, specifically the San Antonio Police Department and the Bexar County Sheriff's Office. The officer's display of support for Trump also worries Maria Garcia, a former deputy in the Bexar County Sheriff's Department, since her grandchildren are black. My granddaughter's going to be driving because she's 16, and it makes me afraid for her, Garcia said. Trump, the self-proclaimed law and order candidate, has built up his campaign by peddling destructive racial stereotypes. He has claimed that Mexicans are quote-unquote rapists, that black people are murderers and living in extreme poverty, and that Muslims are terrorists who should be banned from entering the United States. Garcia was on the force for five years before leaving to become a school counselor, and she says it worries her to think that officers support Trump's policies and uphold his beliefs. It's showing that they're not going to give my grandchildren a fair chance because anyone that follows him, the stuff that comes out of his mouth, it's just upsetting, she said. As a police officer, you should be a role model. That's not being a role model. <sighs> Community relations with police officers were already strained in San Antonio before the Trump hat incident. 63% of the city's population is Latino and 6% is black. Of the seven people killed by police in San Antonio so far this year, three were Latino or Hispanic, one was black, one was white, and the other person's race and ethnicity is unknown. San Antonio police Union, the San Antonio Police Union recently fought a new contract that would have given the police chief more power to punish officers for repeated misconduct. Union leaders wanted additional compensation for agreeing to new standards. Ugh. In the end, officers got a raise... But the contract passed without reforms, meaning that all misconduct marks over two years old still cannot be used to justify discipline for new incidents, and that short suspensions still get reduced to simple reprimands after two years if officers do not appeal them. Black Lives, Matters, Black Lives Matter protesters rallied against the reform-free contract that ended up passing, prompting San Antonio Mayor Ivy Taylor to create the Council on Police Community Relations. These officers exercised poor judgment at a time when we're trying to build bridges between community and police. These officers decided it was a good idea to pull a stunt, said Ray Saldana, a San Antonio city councilman who has worked to reform policing the city. Okay, so the article goes on a bit more. I'm also going to cut it off short. You can read the full article at HuffingtonPost.com. Again, I mean, I have my, <laughs> my level of uh, expectation for many folks in law enforcement is super low 
we know that white supremacists have been infiltrating law, law enforcement as well as politics in the United States for since the nation was founded. Um, so in some ways, this does not come as a surprise to me. And in some ways, this is them letting their true selves be known. And it's just consistent with a lot of the behavior that we've been hearing about. So I uh, did feel like it's another something else for folks who already are not aware of what's happening um, just to see the bias and the hateful, the hatefulness and the bigotry that folks in positions of power, people with badges have, and how dis just frightening that is and how deeply, deeply problematic that is. So those are some two, two stories just to get folks thinking, oh, here's another one. There's going to be four total. Oh, boy. Um, I'll get to this one. Then we'll do a music break. Yeah? And then there's another. Oh, God, there's so much to get to. NPR review finds. I don't even have to read this article because this is like, tell me something I don't know. That'll be the other tagline of the show. Uh, there's another survey that oh, I'll get to maybe also as well. And I feel like there's oftentimes surveys where it's like, blah, 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 X, Y, Z. The survey about something, something, something means that this, and a lot of us who've experienced that, like who are the people that maybe the survey would be surveying or like talking about, it's like, yes, yes, we know that. Thank you that there's a survey that proves our point. Glad there's some researchers and some scientists and folks who have done the research, but this is what we've been saying all along. And so in the story that I think we'll be getting to later is about how uh, being transgender uh, is equivalent to having PTSD existing in this world. And there's a lot of similarities between being a veteran and experiences that someone goes through in a war and existing as a trans person. So, of course, uh, reading the article was very validating uh, for me. And also just like, yep, it's great to see this because I've been trying to talk about it and explain it to people. And I feel, again, I get that if you don't experience it firsthand, if you don't research it, you don't get it, you might not understand it. Um, and it felt very validating to to see it in print, to be like, I'm going to just share this article instead of having to negotiate my feelings and my experiences and try to explain why every single time going outside feels like it's it can be a, a real problem. It feels dif very difficult, very difficult. So this next article from NPR came out October 12th. Review finds San Francisco police disproportionately targeted minorities. Do we really need to read this article? That's been the theme of the show for a long time. <sighs> so we know that. We totally know that. If you'd like to read more information, go to NPR and check out the articles written by Ader Peralta. Okay. Oh, I'm going to keep powering through this. I'm going to read the next article, also having to do with police and surveillance, and then we're going to take a music break and then get into some other stories. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> Wow. People ask me how I do the show and I just keep doing it. And, um, it's, there is as difficult as it is. Um, I also feel it's super important and uh, I feel there's a duty to, to do this, to report what's happening and how these, yeah, everything's connected, right? Everything is connected. And the more we can, with the great James Baldwin quote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So, Think about that. The Washington Post. <laughs> wow, I'm really, uh, <laughs> it's that time of the show when I'm getting getting to it. All right, this is written by Craig Timberg and Elizabeth Dwoskin. This came out on October 11th. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram sent feeds that helped police track minorities in Ferguson and Baltimore, report says. And this is part of the reason I'm hesitant to post on social media, though I recognize everyone else does, and also it is a way of sharing information, although we should be aware that we are being monitored 
and I feel oh from being monitors I might as well at least share the truthful information such as this article it's like a snake eating its tail a powerful surveillance program that police use for tracking racially charged protests in Baltimore and Ferguson, Missouri, relied on special feeds of user data provided by Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, according to an ACLU report Tuesday. The companies provided the data, often including the locations, photos, and other information posted publicly by users, to Geofedia, a Chicago-based company that says it analyzes social media posts to deliver real-time surveillance information to help 500 law enforcement agencies. Why? Ah, that's a lot of law enforcement agencies. Ew. Ugh. Track and respond to crime. I feel like crime should be in their fucking, you know, quotation marks because uh, fracking is a fucking crime. Weapons manufacturing is a fucking crime. Excuse me. The social media companies cut off Geofedia's access to the stream of user data in recent weeks after the ACLU discovered them and alerted the companies about looming public exposure. The popularity of Geofedia and similar programs highlights how the rise of social media has given governments worldwide powerful new ways to monitor crime and civil unrest. Authorities often target such surveillance at minority groups and others seeking to publicly air political grievances, potentially, ch potentially chilling free speech, said the ACLU's California affiliate, which unearthed Geofedia's relationship with social media companies through a public records request of dozens of law enforcement agencies. These platforms need to be doing more to protect the free speech rights of activists of color and stop facilitating their surveillance by police, said Nicole Ozer, Technology and Civil Liberties Policy Director for the ACLU of California. The ACLU shouldn't have to tell Facebook or Twitter what their own developers are doing. The companies need to enact strong public policies and robust auditing procedures to ensure their platforms aren't being used for discriminatory for discriminatory surveillance. Um, and then it says, a, a U.S. judge just disclosed how often law enforcement asked to secretly track electronic records. In a statement, Geofedia chief executive Phil Harris said the company is committed to the principles of personal privacy, transparency, and both the letter and the spirit of the law when it comes to individual rights. He added that the firm works to ensure end users do not seek to inappropriately identify individuals based on race, ethnicity, religious, sexual orientation, or political beliefs, among other factors. That said, we understand that we must continue to work to build on these critical protections of civil rights. Twitter tweeted in a statement, Based on information in the ACLU's report, we are immediately suspending Geofedia's commercial access to, Twitter's data, to Twitter data. Facebook, which owns Instagram, said in a statement that Geofedia was accessing its data improperly. This developer ha only had access to data that people chose to make public. If a developer uses our user data in a way that has not been authorized, we will take swift action to stop them, and we will end our relationship altogether if necessary. Most users of Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram know the social media services as platforms for sharing thoughts or images with friends. But... Companies such as Geofedia and others collect and analyze social media data to help their own customers track emerging online trends. Specialized data streams from social media companies can provide access to faster, more exhaustive collections of posts than otherwise are publicly available. Civil libertarians have grown increasingly concerned that the rising power of government surveillance technology is prompting a spike in the monitoring of African-Americans and other minority groups through video surveillance, social media, and the tracking of cell phone calls. <sighs> in Baltimore, the police and a private company are running surveillance f flights like never before. Police spying on social media has a disproportionate impact on black people, said 
Malkia Cyril, the executive director of the Center for Media Justice, an Oakland-based activist group. There is a movement afoot to ensure that Black Lives Matter. This is being, that is being spied on, spied upon. That is being surveyed. Before the social media companies began blocking access in recent weeks, Geofedia was using specialized data streams for police surveillance. In one email discovered by the ACLU, the, a company employee boasted that it had confidential legally binding agreement with Facebook for data. Another email said users of Geofedia could pull private information for Instagram and Twitters. Neither claim could be independently verified. Because social media posts increasingly provide location information from users' smartphones, surveillance systems can map out areas of looming unrest or political activism. Geofedia documents made public by the ACLU made references to tracking protests in Baltimore in 2015 after the death of a black man, Freddie Gray, while in police custody, and also to protests in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 after the police shooting of Michael Brown, an unarmed black man. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram make most of their money selling advertising but all have side businesses selling outsiders access to their rich data streams about users. For example, through software known as an API, developers have been able to use Facebook to get access to a person's friends list, birthday, profile picture, education history, relationship status, and political affiliation if a person's Facebook profile and location are public. Twitter also sells its own so-called data firehose, which includes the contents of tweets and demographic location like gender and interests, the cellular network users, and geolocation by latitude and longitude coordinates if the user tags it. Customers include financial firms that monitor business trends, retailers looking for product mentions, organizations like the Red Cross, which use the data to monitor crises, and law enforcement. According to the documents obtained by the ACLU, Facebook provided Geofedia with access to a data feed that enabled the surveillance startup to monitor topics trending from public posts about events such as riots or protests. Twitter did not provide access to the full firehose, but offered Geofedia a database to search public tweets. Instagram provided access to the Instagram API, which included photos posted publicly as well as information, location information if the users tagged their pictures. News stories about Geofedia, which was founded in 2011, emerged last month when the Daily Dot website reported that local police in Denver had spent $30,000 on online surveillance tools. Shortly after, the ACLU of California published public records showing that police departments across the state were rapidly acquiring social media monitoring software to monitor activists. Okay, the article goes on, and again, I realize I could have just read the headlines of the other articles, uh, Monday morning, quarterbacking. Uh, because there's still more to get to, and we're already running a little bit low on time. So if you want to read the full article, again, check out Washington Post. And it's also posted on our weekly review page, ironically enough, on Facebook. Ah, sharing information. I'm going to play a quick song, and then we're going to finish up the show with some more articles. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back in just a bit.
Okay, and welcome back to the weekly review. Oh, it's been quite a show already. Uh, I want to make a correction earlier in the show. Uh, the CEO of Yahoo's Marissa Mayer, not Melissa, so I wanted to say that um, uh, before we go into the next uh, few articles and the closing of the show. There's been a uh, strike at the Jim Beam factory, so I want to just mention that briefly. I'm not going to read in the, the full article and having a little bit of difficulty accessing that at the moment as well, but wanted to mention that at least to provide... Uh, uh, yes, um, union workers at Jim Beam Distillery vote to go on strike. So solidarity to all you workers at the Jim Beam Distillery. I don't really drink much anymore at all, but um, that's good for the workers. Okay, trigger warning. Ugh, we live in a very violent, tumultuous, terrible world. Um, so a lot of trans folks have been... It's been a really rough year. And the article in Metro from the UK, actually... Um, Oh, says 2016 is now the deadliest year for transgender people on record. And I also recognize that part of this has to do with that there has been less um, folks report, you know, reporting this in the past. And I wonder if that has to do this as, with this as well. And also just recognizing there was a lot of backlash when there was progress being made. So this was written by Ashitha Nagesh uh, for Metro.co.uk, and this came out on October 8th. Uh, 2016 is now the deadliest year uh, for transgender people on record. A transgender woman, Jazz Alford, was shot and killed in her hotel room in Alabama last month. Her death makes 2016 the deadliest year for transgender people on record. Early reports soon after her death on September 23rd tragically misgendered the 30-year-old Alfred as a male. However, she now has finally been recognized as transgender and is being counted among the trans women killed this year. This is the 22nd murder of a transgender person this year. Alfred from North Carolina was pronounced dead at the scene after her body was discovered by housekeeping staff at the King's Inn in Birmingham, Alabama. Alfred's family told Pink News that they, don't, they didn't know anybody that would want to hurt her. Her sister, Toya Milan, who is also transgender, described her as a loving person whose death was a huge hit for the LGBT community. People think transgender people are monsters when really we just want to be accepted, she said. Denzel Thomas, 23, is being treated as a suspect after being arrested for shooting a different trans woman in her home. That victim survived, but is being treated in a hospital. And uh, the next, I want to provide a moment of silence for Jazz Alford. And um, next, uh, transgender woman found dead in Cleveland with a plastic bag around her head. And this <sighs> came out after that article was written. This was on October 12th in Cleveland, Ohio. And this comes from cleveland.com. And it's written by Adam Ferris. Cleveland, Ohio. A Cleveland woman was found dead Saturday with a plastic bag around her head, identifies as a transgender woman, according to family members. Brandy Bledsoe, Brandy Bledsoe 32, told her family about two years ago that she wanted to be identified as Brandy. And uh, this article was written, I'm assuming, by a cis person. So I'm going to edit it for respect to Brandy. Um, they mention her old name, which we're not going to repeat. Uh, her death is a suspected homicide, but the medical examiner has not... Fuck that. I, uh, it is a fucking homicide. But so it was found dead around 10 a.m. in the driveway behind a home on Drexel Avenue near East 108th Street. And... Uh, um, there are, um, I'm just going to read the, the, the parts of the article that really share who, who Brandy was and, uh, wishing that she rest in power. 
She wasn't very outgoing before she told us, Craggett said. She just wasn't happy with who she was. When she told us, she was honestly a lot better as Brandy. She was happy. Bledsoe's grandfather, 73-year-old Johnny Ledbetter, agreed. We got along great when she lived with me, Ledbetter said. I wish she was around more after she moved out. Craggett said Bledsoe grew up in Nebraska and moved to Cleveland several years ago. She recently moved out of her grandfather's home and into her own place. She was really independent, Craggett said. A lot of opportunities opened up for her. She was looking for freedom. Blitzo worked at an area Home Depot and was an artist who specialized in animation. She was really beautiful, Craggett said. She was really sweet and nice. That's what bugs the crap out of me about this. Whoever did this can rot in hell. Her death, if officially ruled as a homicide, would be the 23rd transgender death in the, in the country in 2016, according to the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. Three other trans women have been killed in the Cleveland area since 2012. Um, also wanting to give um, resting peace, resting in power, Brittany Sturgis, 22, uh, Betty Skinner, 52, a disabled resident of a senior apartment complex in Cleveland's Old Brooklyn neighborhood as well. Those deaths happened less than a year after 20-year-old Samia C.C. Dove was killed in an apartment in Olmstead Township, Cuyahoga County prosecutors said. Prosecutors said Bridges became estranged when... Am I going to read about this person who um, committed this violent act? I don't want to give them any, any time right now. So sending a lot of love and care out to all the people that we've lost so far this year and to all the, the transcestors, that's a word I heard recently. Uh, I think about that a lot. The folks who did everything they can so we could be here today so I could have this, e even the show. I know if I hadn't been able to transition, I wouldn't be here right now. I know that for a fact, absolutely. So wanting to pay homage to the folks who came before, who gave their lives, who were imprisoned, who were faced so much trauma and so much grief and folks who still continue to face trauma and grief. Uh, the last thing I'll get to is, is similar to that, and that's an article, um, as I was mentioning earlier, <sighs> that gives a lot of validation to one's experience, and that's uh, from Brian Rude. Expectation of rejection makes people who are transgender feel anxious, isolated, and depressed, and I definitely can identify with a lot of that. So if you go to minpost.com, and that's M-I-N-N-P-O-S-T.com, you can find the article written by Andy Steiner, and that can also came out on October 12th. And um, th they talk a little bit about how the NIH doesn't prioritize transgender research and how it's really important to, to focus on this research because a lot of the, the research that does happen goes towards cisgender gay men and not trans folks. And the research is focused more on the concept of social stress and its larger impact on the lives of transgender people. And uh, so they're talking about external and enacted stressors and a lot of the studies are saying focus on external or enacted experiences like discrimination, violence, and stigma, negative things that happen to us, and like violence or discrimination in the workplace. And then they also talk about internalized stressors, um, such as internalized stigma, identity concealment, and fear of rejection. I think that's a really huge thing. And I'm just going to read this brief part here. I know we're just about approaching the end of this program. Stay tuned. Next is Women's Magazine with Global Val. 
Uh, an example of identity concealment would be a trans person who hides who they are out of fear of something bad happening to them if someone figures out. This could also include someone who identifies as gay but doesn't come out because they are afraid of violence or their family rejecting them. Internalized stigma includes internalized homophobia. When we hear these negative messages about homosexuality, we begin to internalize them and ultimately believe them. The third type of internalized stressor is the expectation or fear of rejection. This would be if someone worries that because of their identity, if they go somewhere in public, something bad might happen to them. An example of fear of rejection would be if a trans person thought, I'm worried about using the restroom because someone might attack me if they realize that my gender identity doesn't match my sex assigned at birth. This would be a highly stressful situation for someone to anticipate or worry about happening. And uh, I wish I had more time to, to read this. It's just, there's just a whole lot here. It's also, it's been a really long show, but I recommend that folks check out this article. Um, really do, do check it out and read it because I feel like it gives a lot of credence to certainly my own experience and I'm sure a lot of experience for, for many of us. And the researcher also was quoted as saying it was like the information is really sobering as a cis person to recognize what, what trans folks go through. <sighs> so um, there's another story we'll probably get to next week, hopefully. Uh, Netherlands closes down 19 prisons due to lack of prisoners. So that's a positive story. Just to end on an up note. It's been a heavy episode. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. If you have commentary, if you have questions, please feel free to comment <laughs> on and follow us on, on Facebook, evil Facebook, I know, facebook.com slash weeklyrev. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. Plenty of shows here every day of the week. Um, yeah, this has been Roman. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening. Do what you can to fight the power, to speak up for injustices, to think about intersectionality and how we can share our resources with one another and stand up for one another because we need to do more of that to take down the systems in power because they're all a bunch of fuckers. On that note, here's some beautiful instrumental music. Stay tuned because Women's Magazine with Global Val is coming up next and Val has a great guest coming on. So looking forward to hearing that. After that, it's Common Thread Collective. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. Take care and have a wonderful week, everyone.